Hello, Renoites listeners, and welcome to the new season, the new year, the new Renoites. I mean, it's not really new. It's the same thing. My name is Connor McQuivy. I am your host, as always, here to have great conversations with people from Reno who are doing interesting things. It is so exciting to be back to making new episodes. A couple quick updates about the podcast. I took a few months off over the holiday season. I was going to take a break for just a couple weeks, and it turned into longer than I originally planned. But that downtime was great. It was refreshing, and now I am excited to be back at it. This year, I plan to do hopefully another 30 episodes. I did 32 last year. This year, I am breaking the show into seasons, so I'm going to do 10 episodes, take a little break, another 10 episodes, and we're kicking off season two of Renoites today with our guest, David Gamble Jr. David is a local stand-up comic. You also may know him from a viral essay that he wrote in 2020, shortly after the murder of George Floyd, about growing up black in Reno. We talk about that essay. We talk about his experience in the stand-up comedy world, some of the trends in stand-up comedy in general, how we use comedy to talk about difficult issues. It was such a good conversation. Really, really great to have him on the show and just a fantastic way to kick off this new season. I'm very grateful to him for coming on the show and to you for listening. Thank you so much for supporting this project of mine. Last year was an absolute blast. I had so many great conversations and I'm really, really excited about this season and this year and all of the great people that I get to talk to in town. This project really has been a dream come true, and I'm so grateful for everyone that has shown any kind of support. So thank you so much for listening. Before we get into the interview, a couple notes. If you enjoy the show, please let people know. One of the challenges of having a podcast is promoting it, letting people know about it, getting the word out there. I do the best that I can on social media, things like that. But a lot of people still don't even know the show exists, and I would love for everyone who listens to podcasts and lives in Reno to at least be aware of it. So tell your friends, tell your family, post on social media, let people know that there's a great local podcast with a lot of cool interviews with people in our little town of Reno. I appreciate you doing that. Also, you may know I host trivia for DJ Trivia here in town. That's my day job. Several nights a week, I am out at local bars and restaurants hosting trivia nights. It's free to play. It's a ton of fun. You get to see me in person if that's something that you're into. So come play trivia sometime. I host several different venues, but we have games every night between Sunday and Thursday at venues all over town. So go to djtrivianevada.com. And you can search, find a venue close to you, find a host that you like, even if it's not me. I won't be offended. Check it out. Go play. Have a lot of fun. Prizes to be won. DJTriviaNevada.com. Also, let's talk about news real quick. The importance of local news is huge. There is so much happening in Reno right now, especially major issues like development, homelessness, the economy in Reno. Those things are super important. And a lot of the National news will never cover them here in town, and a lot of our local news also doesn't always get to the heart of these issues. But we do have a great local news source in This Is Reno. Thisisreno.com is their website. You can also find them on social media. They do such a fantastic job of covering things that matter to people here in town. So if you're not following This Is Reno, I highly recommend you do so. You can sign up for their newsletter. You get the headlines in your email. And I just think it's really important to support local journalism. So check them out as well. This is Reno.com. If you have any guest suggestions, any ideas for topics for episodes, any kind of feedback, reach out. Let me know. You can email me anytime. My address is Connor, C-O-N-O-R, at Renoites.com. So hit me up. Let me know what you think of the show. Send me guest suggestions. I always love to hear from listeners. And now, this week's guest kicking off our new season, David Gamble Jr., David Gamble Jr., welcome to Renoites. Thank you so much for coming on the show today. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Yeah, I'm excited to talk about comedy. So this is the first episode of the new year, the new season. We made it to 2022, and I've wanted to do an episode about comedy for a while because Reno has a local comedy scene, and we're also very much a live entertainment city, maybe a little bit less now, um, yeah. but like we're based in tourism. There have always been comedy clubs and like bigger comedy venues here. We get touring comics. Uh, so I really want to talk about kind of Reno as a comedy city. So I think that's a good place to start as someone who is a local stand-up comic, 
who's pretty well-versed in Reno's comedy scene. Can you just kind of give us a little bit of a background on how you think of Reno as a comedy city, both from the kind of like national touring comic perspective all the way down to like the local comedy shows. And then you do like open mics and stuff. So can you just kind of talk about Reno as a comedy city? Yeah. So for uh, from the national perspective, Reno has two comedy clubs that national acts perform in for the most part. And that would be Pioneer Underground, uh, which is uh, run by a company called Reno Tahoe Comedy. That is what was my home club before the pandemic. Um, It unfortunately hasn't been open, but they're still running shows sort of around the city. And the other one is the Laugh Factory and the Silver Legacy. And so if you are hoping to to catch sort of uh, national acts, those are the two real comedy clubs in town. Outside of that, there's uh, some of the bigger acts come and do the theaters at the casinos. So we went and saw, I went and saw Bill Burr uh, not too long ago at the GSR. That was fantastic in their theater. Also saw uh, Jim Gaffigan there. And so um, so that's sort of the, the scene on a national level. On a local level, because of the pandemic, sort of, the local scene has really opened up. Before the pandemic, those two clubs were kind of the only place that comedians could kind of get in and perform on a regular basis. Uh, Once the pandemic hit, though, uh, the local comedians became very sort of resourceful and started running shows around town. And so um, I have a a couple of friends, uh, Sarah Rooker and Andrea B. They run shows in Reno and Tahoe. My friend Louis C. runs a show at Dead Ringer, a bar uh, down on 4th Street. And I run a monthly show at Farino Distillery on 4th Street. And so with those shows, what I tend to do is they are showcases. I'll put, you know, some of my local friends on them. I I will host sometimes and then uh, we'll get, you know, acts that we kind of know, you know, people who are at a little bit higher level of comedy than some people here in town, but not super famous, but they'll come in and do shows as well. Mm -hmm. And then from the open mic scene, the open mic is, um, is how comics develop our material. And so you take what you think is funny the problem with comedy is that you don't know if it's funny until you've said it on a stage in front of strangers. <laughs> and, so, and so an open mic is where you take that material, you go, you say what you thought was a hilarious joke. You Usually most comics will record it to see what is laughed at and what is not. You keep what's laughed at, you cut out what's not, you go back the next week and you do the same thing and eventually you have an act. And when I started out, I started at an open mic at, um, it, it's a bar called The Library on 5th Street. And that was sort of um, one of the few at the time. And now the open mic scene has opened up quite a bit in Reno as well. Uh, There's the library, I believe, uh, the office, Hughes and Porter's, Dead Panda puts on a mic in uh, Victorian Square. Dead Panda is a local comedy group. They put on a mic in Victorian Square in Sparks. And so at this point, you can find an open mic any night of the week if you would like to. That's awesome. Do you think that that has helped people who are just trying to get into stand up? have more of a possibility to do that? Because it sounds like before, but there was only a couple clubs, you had to already have that material established and already kind of like have some kind of name for yourself. Do you think that the open mic availability is helping more people, you know, dip their toe in the water? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yes. There's many, many more um, young comedians, as I as I call them, (laughs) than when I started. Uh, When I started, there was like a handful of people sort of and now it seems to be a bit of an explosion. It seems like Reno kind of re- has a real comedy scene now. Mm-hmm. Um, and I sort of, yeah, I would go to, when I started out, I would go to my open mic at the library on a weekly basis and I would do some jokes. And then eventually uh, the Pioneer Underground gave me a shot. And so, you know, I I still wasn't great at that point, <laughs> but, but they were kind enough to sort of let me develop my act uh, in front of paying audiences with uh, touring headliners. And so if you can find a club like that, that would let you on in that capacity. And and Reno is a kind of a smaller market. A lot of clubs might let you on in that capacity in larger markets, but they will require that you bring a certain number of people to see mm. you perform or you will pay for your stage time. Um, and so fortunately, I didn't have to do that. But yeah, uh, definitely uh, the scene is is developing a lot. And there's a lot of really... Uh, promising up and comers in the in the Reno scene. That's great. And you mentioned that there's like a lot of the comedians know each other. You work together on these showcases frequently. Yeah. Um, yeah. Can you talk a little bit about kind of just like what the comedy community element is like working with other comedians, like sharing ideas? Um, how much does that play into kind of your development as a comic and how the scene functions? 
So if you can, if you can get a, a sort of a really good group of friends who are comics who you kind of trust and who you have good chemistry with, just like any other friends, then your conversations kind of can just become your jokes. And so it, it is sort of a bit of um, whenever you're hanging out with comedians, there is a bit of just bouncing ideas off of each other, whether you know it or not. You're just mm -hmm. chatting, but you're formulating things as jokes. And that definitely helps. For me, writing alone is very difficult. Uh, and it's, it's mostly what I do, but it is extremely difficult, especially, I guess, because of the conversational nature of, of modern stand-up. Mm -hmm. um, most stand-up comedians in their, in their delivery, you want to sound sort of like you're just kind of making it up off the top of your head and you're just talking to friends. It's hard to do that when you're alone. But if you are actually doing that in the moment, it helps a ton. But yeah, if, if you can find someone whose sort of comedic sensibilities jibe with yours um, and you think they're funny and, and you trust them, it's the best way to write probably. I know um, at the, the highest level, I know that Kevin Hart's uh, crew of comedians who he has with him are just his friends from, <laughs> you know, from, from back in the day. Um, and so he just hangs out with them and they come up with funny stuff together. And it seems like a, an ideal life. Mm -hmm. Have you found that those kind of conversational... Uh, situations where you're joking with friends, you're kind of unofficially workshopping material. How do you translate that into something that works on stage? Is there a whole process kind of of saying like, okay, this was funny when we were just sitting around and chatting and laughing with ourselves, but that might not necessarily work when you are standing up to deliver it. So like, what does that process look like of turning something from something that's just like a funny conversation into a joke? Or I mean, really just kind of what's the difference between a funny person and a stand-up comedian and like how do you bridge those so i i guess the the issue with stand-up is that because there are lots of funny people you know we all have friends who we hang out with and we think god you're so funny and the thing that almost i think i probably didn't realize to a great extent at the beginning and a lot of people don't realize is the the formatting of jokes is that you know you have essentially the format is set up punchline mm -hmm. um but the punchline has to be something that that really hits it has to be a, a reason that people want to laugh and there's different theories and 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 uh takes on why people laugh i think the primary one uh just to get super comedy nerdy here for a second yeah. uh is benign violation which is that you are you are tiptoeing up to the edge of saying something extremely inappropriate or you do say something inappropriate but you say it in such a way that the audience knows that it's still safe to laugh at it and they can all laugh at it together Mm -hmm. Um, uh, another reason why people laugh is that sometimes things are surprising. You'll take a quick left turn, you know, but in, in taking what is a conversation and turning it into a joke, you have to give people context and a reason to laugh at it. So usually you mm -hmm. want to put it into some sort of a, a story. And so often there will be things that, you know, that I'm talking to my wife about and I think, oh God, that's, that's funny. Uh, how do I turn this into a joke? What I do usually is I just make up some story <laughs> that, right. that that punchline fits into that's close to what actually happened. And uh, and then when I tell the joke and it works, she gets really mad because she's like, that's not what happened. <laughs> I didn't say that. And the, the, the problem is that the truth is often not extremely funny. So you do have to right. you have to sort of stylize it in a way. Of course, of course. You mentioned that Reno's not a particularly huge market, but I noticed that there's also these kind of overlap with other areas in the region. So I see local comedians doing like a show in, in Sacramento, that kind of thing. Have you found that to be helpful too, to kind of interact with other smaller local comedy scenes and kind of, um, and learn from that and, and, and build kind of like a regional, uh, comedy scene? Yes, absolutely. Um, these, the Sacramento scene, Sacramento has a couple clubs. They have the, uh, punchline. They also have laughs unlimited, and those are uh, pretty good clubs. And so there is a scene there. And what happened also throughout the pandemic was that a lot more Sacramento comedians started coming to Reno to perform. And mm -hmm. a lot more Reno comics started going to Sacramento to perform. And so it has sort of uh, created this even larger, yeah, sort of regional scene. Mm -hmm. um, I run my monthly show at Farino Distillery in Reno. And this month it's going to be on the 28th, January 28th. On that show, I have uh, three comedians coming in from Sacramento, and there are comics who I've worked with in the past, extremely funny, but it's nice because they also bring in, um, even though it's just, you know, two hours over the mountains from Reno, they bring in a different perspective and a different energy than Reno mm -hmm. has. 
Reno often our uh, perspective and energy is kind of like Reno is gritty, Reno's dirty. It's, you know, it's lesser Vegas, that sort of thing. And a lot of those sort of jokes work here. Mm -hmm. They're coming from a completely uh, different place. They're coming from, you know, the city of trees. It's California, you Mm -hmm. know, just a different vibe. So that has been, yeah, that's been a great thing that's happened as well. Yeah, it makes sense that there would be some some novelty or some variety when you're getting comics that are from out of town and are not doing like Reno jokes. They're probably Reno comedians who are doing jokes that really specifically work in Reno and having some variety from people who are from a different perspective probably probably helps, right? Yeah. If you want to if you want to kill in Reno, uh, make a joke about meth. Meth (laughs) jokes kill in Reno. I don't know if they do that well in Sacramento, but but yeah, those those are great here. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's also probably fun for local comics to be able to do kind of like a mini version of touring, right? Like getting to go to a different city and play to a different crowd in a different venue. That's the big dream for big comics is to play these like big do these big tours. But even on the local level, it's probably kind of exciting to say like, oh, yeah, I'm like going to play these venues out of town to a different crowd. That probably feels like a step up from from playing just the local clubs, right? Yeah, yeah. I've I've gotten to do uh, Sacramento. I've gotten to do Vegas. I've gotten to do San Francisco. And yeah, it does feel like, oh, God, I'm kind of becoming a real comic now. Mm-hmm. Um, and the the other thing that I really wondered, you know, in my head, uh, in stepping out of, you know, my hometown was like, am I funny anywhere else? Am I? <laughs> because, because that's sort of the thing is that I think I have, I think if you perform in your hometown all the time, you know, you learn what works there. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not going to work in front of every audience. And that's sort of what you want ultimately as a comic, if you're trying to do it professionally, is you want to have jokes that work in front of any audience, or you want to have certain jokes that you can switch to if if you're in front of a different kind of audience Mm -hmm. you know yeah that makes sense what do you think makes local comedians really stand out so there's obviously a lot of people are interested in in open mic some people probably do really well some people don't do as well so what are the things that you think really help local comics uh stand out and and do well is it you know unique content that other comics aren't doing what do you think makes a good comic basically for like a local comic scene Ooh, that's tough to say. Um, I mean, besides, like being funny, obviously. Yeah, right? yes, yes. That's being funny. As <laughs> a probably step one is you got to be funny. <laughs> you know, I, I would think probably an interesting perspective uh, is what works a lot. And also, I mean, there's so many reasons why comics are funny. It can be your perspective. Um, it can be the structure of your jokes. It can be the delivery of your jokes. Ideally, all three of those work together to make you good. But, you know, for uh, for, for me... My perspective is sort of that of um, black guy who sort of grew up amongst the whites, for, for <laughs> lack of a better phrase. Like I grew up, I was a suburban Reno kid, but I'm also a black guy. And those sort of culture clashes. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, uh, my my friend Sarah Rooker uh, is uh, very funny. She's sort of like... Um, she, I don't, I don't even know how to phrase it. She brings a lesbian perspective. That's not what I want to say, but, but, but much of her act is, yeah, is what it is like to be a, a gay woman. And then also mm-hmm. just to be a woman, mm-hmm. uh, which is also an interesting perspective, uh, for Reno, uh, or actually for any standup scene, uh, comedy is still very much a male dominated, uh, sort of field. And so it is interesting to just even hear that perspective of like, what is it like to be a woman right now? Mm-hmm. Um, spoiler alert, it doesn't sound great. <laughs> so, <laughs> so uh, you know, for me, um, probably interesting perspective. Also, uh, I have a friend, Stephen Dente, who performs, uh, kind of all over the place, but he lives here in Reno. The structure of his jokes are just great. They're all just very surprising, very self-deprecating. You sort of don't know where he's headed. Uh, and when he gets there, it is surprising and just hilarious i guess the same thing that makes any comic great is the same thing that would make a reno comic great yeah do you think that reno has um is like fertile ground for that kind of comedy like you mentioned like the kind of like culture clash the like fish out of water commenting on the you know the more like broader structural societal kind of thing is like reno is a like a pretty white city um so being a black comic in a white city probably gives you a lot of opportunity to explore that and joke about that do you think that there are things about reno that make it kind of good ground for that kind of comedy more than any other city or or anything unique about reno that um that creates the ability to do that kind of content i could see that actually yeah uh, reno like you said it's a it's a heavily white city it was uh, i don't know what it is currently when i was growing up here 
it was like 2.4% black. <laughs> so it was just sort of like very, you know, uh, I, I felt alone a lot of the time. But at the same time, I haven't found people in Reno to be uh, racially malicious. People are friendly for the most part. Mm -hmm. uh, they're just trying to get along. Oftentimes when I have uh, felt uh, racism or racial pressure, it is sort of like a, a just more of a lack of understanding than just a, than an animus. Mm -hmm. um, and so, yeah, I think people here are curious and you have a good mix. Reno, you know, old Reno, uh, sort of less urbane, um, sort of more that uh, Wild West sort of sort of culture. And then as Reno has grown and sort of modernized, now we're getting, you know, the cool bars with the $14 cocktails <laughs> and, and the small plates. And so we have this new element of like younger, cooler Reno. And so there is this sort of constant tension and clash going on. And you do sort of get to play to a, a wide swath of, uh, I guess, socioeconomically, mm -hmm. um, if not racially. And so, um, so yeah, it, it is a great place for that sort of culture clash. Reno, I think, is also anybody who has moved here or visited, I think, has found it surprising. I think people have this idea of Reno. Um, uh, thank you, Reno 911. Mm -hmm. and, then, <laughs> and, then, and then outside of that, when people get here, they find that, oh, you can actually, you know, you can go skiing in the Sierra Nevadas. It's a half hour away. We have cool bars. There's a little better shopping than, why, than when I was a kid here. We have the Truckee River that runs right through the middle of the city. It's kind of, you can find a lot of things here if you're looking for them. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that Reno has this kind of vague, amorphous identity that seems to shift a lot. And depending on what part of town you're from or how long you've lived here, you might have a very different idea about what Reno is or what it should be. And it seems like that is um, it's interesting. And I think good comedy comments on things that are interesting. So I think there's probably room to kind of joke a lot about what Reno is, what it should be, what it has been, because it is always a little bit unclear. And there's so many kind of like competing perspectives about the city. Yeah, we are kind of um, people here are sort of socially and environmentally conscious. At the same time, we like our guns. Mm -hmm. At the same time, we like our weed. <laughs> we also have, you know, legal prostitution in counties just nearby. So it's this very, yeah, just interesting mix. And it is the sort of thing, it is the sort of tension and weirdness that produces good comedy, probably. Mm -hmm. How did you get into comedy? So you're you're a lawyer by trade. So like, that's a serious job. I always think of lawyers as being like, kind of serious people not that lawyers can't be funny but like yeah, yeah that's like a serious job and you worked i think as a as a public defender right that's right yeah right yeah. so that's like even among the lawyer world that's like more serious i think than some like you know a state law or whatever so how did you get into comedy have you always been interested in performing have you always been a, a funny person like what was your kind of uh, entry into comedy world so i I have always wanted to be a funny person. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know if I have been. I've wanted to be. Um, uh, with being a lawyer, there is this. Um, uh, what is it called? There's a book, The Artist's Way, and it talks about lapsed artists. One of the lapsed artist types that they describe is that the person who probably wanted to be an actor or performer might become a lawyer instead. And so these are people who probably are artists, but choose some safe profession. And so to an extent, I think that's that's uh, that's me. You know, my my skill set always worked for law. I enjoy uh, writing. I enjoy argument. I enjoy use of language. But at the same time, yeah, I always sort of looked up to actors. I always looked up to stand up comics. When I was a kid, my parents started us out watching Sinbad. Sinbad was the, the primary comic that we watched, mostly because he didn't swear. And so we could all watch it together. But God, he is so funny. And watching the way that people respond to stand-up comics, watching uh, just sort of the adoration that people have for funny people mm -hmm. and the ability to uh, to turn your ideas into, into something that people relate to and that makes them feel joy, I, it's, it's human connection on one of the highest levels. And so I sort of always loved that. Once I became a lawyer, um, and especially a trial attorney as the public defender, I found, you know, okay, obviously I can talk in front of people. I'm in court every day talking, putting together ideas. That part is possible. Now, can I make them laugh? Mm -hmm. And so once I was in court every day, one of my friends, uh, Brett McGinnis, was going to an open mic and he asked me if I wanted to come along. And so I was like, yeah, I've always been interested in comedy. So I went and I watched. And uh, a lot of the people at that particular open mic, 
didn't seem to have either setups or punchlines <laughs> were were very drunk and <laughs> and seemed to be rambling quite a bit and so i thought okay i can do this and so mm. so i went back the next week i prepared 5 minutes uh it went well I think I have the kind of personality that if I had bombed, I may have never gone back. I was just lucky that it went well that time. And so from there, it just became so fun. And the thing that I liked at the time that I started comedy, uh, it was 2015 or 14. Um, I think 15. And so we were in the midst of a presidential race and... I, you know, much like many people, I could not believe what was happening. I just couldn't believe that it was a reality. And so for me, it was a bit liberating to get on stage and sort of just say whatever I felt to just sort of be like, are you guys not seeing this and say the things out loud that everybody was pretending they couldn't see. Needless to say, uh, Donald Trump jokes wore thin extremely quickly, <laughs> but, mm. but that was the, that was sort of the thing for me was the ability to express yourself loudly on a stage and face very few consequences. Yeah, well, I think that is part of the appeal for comics in general is it, it is a, a relatively free environment, like free speech is always a big part of the conversation around comedy. Mm -hmm. um, it's always like pushing boundaries. Generally, I think in the entertainment world, it's one of those few places where there's still a lot of leeway about what you can and can't do. And I think that that probably helps people who have a lot to say to have like an outlet for that. So have you found that comedy has let you kind of share more or express more than you thought you would have been able to otherwise? Yes. Yeah, certainly. Certainly. Um racially, I would say so. Um, or just generally, you know, I get on stage and I, I make jokes about, you know, how it sucks to be married, how it sucks to have kids. I don't really think those things suck, but there are certainly aspects of them that are that suck. But it's sort of the things that like people are, you know, people are like, you have to love your kids no matter what. Yes, you do. But also you get to say that they kind of suck sometimes. <laughs> and, and to say it on a stage is very liberating. And so, yeah, I, I have found that that is uh, one of the better aspects for me. The other thing I think is that um, in today's media environment, I guess what I think is that traditional journalism is stymied in a way in that it seems it is almost required to give a fair hearing to both sides, no matter what, no matter how ridiculous one side may be, they are attempting to give a f fair hearing to both. Whereas comics, uh, if you are a good comic, you just sort of tell it like it is. You say, mm -hmm. you state what is obvious. And I sort of, in my mind, I sort of feel like that is why um, comics are currently our best journalists to an extent. I feel like uh, John Oliver, John Stewart, um, you know, Sam B, Samantha B. I, I feel like they get at the heart of things in a way that that traditional reporters cannot. Um, or also I love, um, Jordan Klepper's man on the street segments on the daily mm -hmm. show where he just sort of goes out and talks directly to these people, but is making jokes the entire time. It shows you sort of the absurdity of what is going on in a very clear way that journalists cannot get at. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I do think there's been this big shift. I think since the daily show, Jon Stewart probably like really changed that format of political comedy where it's talking to the audience with like uh, the visual aids on the screen. So you yeah. have some like visual punchlines as well, but it is specifically pointing out the absurdity in a lot of the other reporting or in the political world in a way that, you know, has that acknowledgement of reality at the heart of it. Yeah. Yeah. The first joke is, holy crap, like w how is this even happening? And then the punchlines go on top of that, yeah, um, which exactly. I don't think really was, the main format of comedy that most people were consuming. But now I think most people, I don't know how many people watch stand-up comedy versus how many people are watching kind of the political comedy TV shows, but I would imagine that this format of kind of like current events, political comedy has really just grown consistently, especially, you know, during the Trump era and before um, leading up to that election, it's become kind of like one of the main forms of comedy. Yeah, yeah. Do you do a lot of comedy around political current events kind of stuff too? Like what's your, what type of jokes do you like to write and how much of the social issues and political stuff do you like to include in your comedy? So I, when I, uh, when I started in comedy, sort of the way that I viewed myself was essentially as a daily show correspondent. So I was writing jokes that were very political and very much centered, um, in that sort of uh, daily show format of their, of their, you know, their correspondence. And I found that uh, 
it is difficult to do <laughs> to do political <laughs> comedy because people have such differing ideas. There is also uh, often sort of a presumed uh, knowledge base um, in politics that you that you want um, mm. that isn't always there. And so I found that they did not have mass appeal. Mm. The other issue is that what they say is that you have to figure out why you are funny. And I have found that people will accept like sort of like uh, very silly jokes from me, but the more serious sort of political jokes, I am not funny when I do them for some reason. So my my comedy now sort of centers around um, being married, having children. I'm in an interracial marriage. My wife is white. And so that brings up uh, some interesting points off of which to go. My children are racially ambiguous as a result of that. So that's sort of funny. I, of course, what it is like to be black in Reno or what it's like to be black in America generally. And for a while, I did a lot of jokes about sort of like... Um, millennials what it was like to be a millennial we mm. are no longer young or cool so <laughs> so those so those jokes are kind of going by the wayside um but but that was sort of uh yeah sort of my shtick i guess i i have found that people uh, my my favorite kind of jokes to do uh especially now uh sort of center around race and sort of the absurdity of race I find that in order to have general audiences accept those jokes i find i have to be pretty silly mm. um I had a joke that I would tell early on that had a transition and that transition was here's the thing white people and the audience was mostly white and I would lose them right there it was just like it was like don't call us white people <laughs> it was because because I don't think traditionally I don't think white people are used to being racialized in that way mm -hmm. and also I think they having a black guy say that to them I think felt like you know a bit of an attack probably mm -hmm. and so I would so that joke would just die right there and so I found mm -hmm. that I had to take that part out and soften it uh, in order to get to the ultimate punchline. Um, and so it is, um, it's an interesting exercise, but when I can get people to laugh at jokes about race that are something that generally people say, oh, I don't believe that. I don't, you know, oh, I don't know anything about that. I'm colorblind. And then you get them to laugh at something that clearly shows they are not. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, they've sort of accepted at that point your take on things. And so I, I like that. If I can get people to laugh at something that I believe to be true about race, that they normally might deny. Uh, yeah. It's my favorite thing. Yeah. Well, I read an, uh, an interview you did recently where you talked about doing a joke about police violence to a room full of cops. Oh, and yes, I think yes. there's <laughs> like knowing your audience and being able to deliver something that, again, like you said, there is truth there and people know it and getting through to them in the form of comedy can be like a really impactful way of making people think for a second. So can you tell me a little bit about kind of like that, that situation and yeah yeah so i i was invited uh when i was a public defender um our bailiffs our court bailiffs were washoe county sheriffs and so i was invited by one of the court bailiffs to come and perform at a um there was a conference in town i believe it was a conference for hostage negotiation if i recall correctly you know she was like we'll pay you as to be the entertainment you bring you know yourself and three other comics and come perform and so, yeah, so we get there and it is a room full of police officers. Um, and it was, oof. I mean, I guess it doesn't matter when it was because relations between black people and police have never been great. <laughs> so, so it doesn't matter when yeah. it was, but it was in maybe 2015 or something like that uh, or 2016. But yeah, and so I, you know, I sort of like, I thought like, well, what can I say to these guys? And so the, my opening joke, the joke that I ended up coming up with was, you know, when I was hired to do this show, I was a little hesitant at first. And then I thought, yeah, I'll do it. What's the worst thing that could happen to a black guy in a room full of police officers? And they loved that joke. <laughs> they, they laughed and la I mean, there were cheers and whistles. And, and the thing of it is, is that what I am saying is that, you know, the worst thing that can happen to a black person in a room of, full of police officers is serious injury or death, as we have seen on multiple occasions, on many, many video recordings, going back to Rodney King. And so the fact that they would laugh at that sort of acknowledges that, you know, that premise that we all know what the worst thing that happens to black people in the presence of police is. So it was weird because they're acknowledging it. And then at the same time, they still like me, <laughs> even though I've just been like, you guys kill black people. So, <laughs> so, so that's sort of the, yeah, that was a, that was a fun one. Um, yeah. And it's, yeah, I think comedy just allows you to connect with people um, in some very strange ways that you wouldn't normally be able to. Mm -hmm. 
Well, you also you wrote an op-ed last year for the Reno Gazette, which got a lot of attention too. And this is unrelated to comedy because it was more serious. It was during the protests around after George Floyd, and it was about your experience growing up black in Reno, which again you you joke about as part of your comedy. But it was a serious kind of exploration of all of the types of racism that you've experienced in Reno. Can you just talk a little bit about that op-ed and and why you wrote it and what the response was to it? Yeah, yeah. So it was it was during uh, yeah, like you said, it was during the George Floyd protests. It was in June of 2020, so sort of right after George Floyd was killed. And I think that for me, at that time, I sort of couldn't believe what the conversation was about race and blackness in America. And I sort of couldn't believe what people were saying about black people. And I found that when those things were being said, often they would be people that I knew would be exempting me from those statements. So they would be saying, you're different, though, David, you know, you're you're a lawyer, you know, you've done things right. You're you're different than them. And so what I wanted to point out was that there is no daylight between me and other black people that I have, you know, I might be a lawyer, which is a 95% white um, profession. I live in a mostly white city. I live in a mostly white neighborhood. I am married to a white person, but that doesn't exempt me from the experience of blackness in America, which is just people either trying on a, on a frequent basis to make you feel like you are less than them or accidentally doing so because of the societal norms that tell us all on a daily basis that black people are less than white people in this society. And so what I set out to do was just put down, I think it was something like 20 to 25 incidences of what it was like to be discriminated against in Reno as a kid growing up. And then from there, go back to what it was like for my parents when we moved to Reno and how they were discriminated against. And then from there, go back to what it was like for my grandfather when he was in the National Guard and he was discriminated against. And then go back from there to what it was like for my ancestors who were enslaved persons. (laughs) And that there is a direct tie between all of that, that it is not over. And, Mm -hmm. And that's the thing that you hear so often is that racism is over especially when Obama became president. It was it was almost an angry sort of thing. It was like, if he gets in, that means racism's over. <laughs> Clearly it's not. And so, so what I wanted to show people was that um, no matter what level of society you're at as a Black person or how good and happy-go-lucky you think I might be as a Black person, this has affected my life as well, and it's real. And I, and I think that's why it sort of did so well, resonated with so many people. It it ended up being shared like 150,000 times on Facebook. Um, And I think it was because of that perspective and putting my human face on it Mm -hmm. um, and saying, look at me from third grade through today, what it is like to be a black kid. And so, yeah, so I was, um, I was, I was very happy at the response. I thought, um, honestly, at the time, tensions were extremely high. I thought like I might be endangering myself or my family by putting that out. But the vast majority of responses that I got were positive. They were um, supportive. They were people saying, you know what? I didn't understand it until I read this. And thank you for doing this. And so Mm -hmm. that was pleasant. Um, As you can see, I did not solve the problem. (laughs) It persists. (laughs) It was a nice nice attempt at solving racism. Um, Yeah, you know, I thought I'll write this essay. This will end it all. (laughs) Yeah, next one. Next one, I'm sure the next one will do it. Next op-ed, racism solved. You know, and I, yeah, I am, uh, I am currently working on an, on another one. There is this uh, law, 8 USC 1326. I don't know if you've heard of this law. It is, it is the law that makes illegal reentry for aliens a felony. And so a Reno lawyer uh, decided to challenge this law on the basis that it had discriminatory intent. So essentially what she was saying is that this law is racist And then she got a judge, a Reno judge, a federal judge based in Reno, to listen to that argument. Most judges will not listen to an argument claiming a law is racist. And then she put on a bunch of evidence with historians sort of drawing the line and showing that at one point it was called racist names, that it was based in the eugenics movement, that the intent of the law was specifically to uh, punish Mexicans, Mexican-Americans or Latinos for entering the U.S., And uh, our federal judge here in Reno struck it down as racist, which is sort of an unprecedented thing. And so I'm hoping uh, I'm working on something with that right now, and I'm hoping to get that published. I have no idea who will publish it, but it's sort of just an amazing story. And so I am, uh, 
yeah, I, maybe I'll solve, maybe I'll solve immigration with that. Yeah. So <laughs> yeah, didn't, didn't work on, on, uh, racism around, uh, black people last year, but we're trying again around immigration yeah, issues. Exactly. I'll just write one for everybody. And eventually, exactly. eventually one of them's got to land. It's like, it's, this is, same idea as comedy, right? Just like keep, keep putting the stuff out there and eventually something's going to hit, right? Yeah. Plug away, plug away. Eventually they're going to like something. It'll solve it all. So, uh, well, one of the things that I took away from the op-ed that you wrote last year too, was you talked a lot about the historical context and like all the way back, like you just described, but again, it wasn't just about your childhood. It was all the way up until like today, up till now, like the, the takeaway that I got from it was what we're talking about now is like, it is not solved. It is better in some ways, but it is not something that we can say, okay, like mission accomplished around bringing it back to comedy a little bit, have you found any of those racial dynamics or those uh, microaggressions or like any of these kind of things? Do you find those to be present in the comedy scene as well? Because I mean, obviously, the comedy world is not immune from from racism and from these kind of issues. Yeah, you know, I mean, uh, there is, I guess, some of Yeah, I mean, racism is everywhere. Um, The thing with comedy, I think, is that most of what most comedians are doing is trying to make you laugh. And so I do, yes, I have certainly heard people tell jokes about race that have landed extremely poorly, that are in bad taste. In the comedy world, I will generally give people a bit of a pass because I understand what you were trying to do is make people laugh. Now, of course, there is a line (laughs) that's like, that wasn't funny at all. Why would you even say that or try that? But yeah, for the most part, because that, that that is sort of the thing. You do have to sort of have a bit of a thick skin to be in the comedy world. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of comedy is taking what are complex ideas and concepts and sort of reducing them down to their bare essence in order to make people laugh. And so, uh, and oftentimes that involves a, a bit of meanness as well. And I, I, I think of... Um, <laughs> What, a joke that my uh, that my friend Sarah told one time in a bar was there was this guy there who had uh, he he was wearing sort of athletic gear and he had frosted tips, um, and so she called him like Lance Bass with no cardio, and so it was because he was a little pudgier than Lance Bass. That is super mean, but it was also extremely funny. We don't know anything about this guy. We don't know why he has frosted tips or like, <laughs> like that. But she reduced him down to the one thing that people would laugh at. And so that's what you're trying to do in comedy. Mm-hmm. Um, and so people, yeah, in, in attempting to reduce um, a huge complex issue such as race and racism down to a pithy quip, it can be difficult and you can certainly miss the target sometimes. And I, I have certainly missed the target sometimes as well. There was, um, I have a joke that is about police shootings that starts out as sort of a, a dick joke, <laughs> so, and, but the punchline ends up being about police shootings. And there was a woman sitting in the front row and she just kind of audibly said, that's not funny. And she looked sad and angry I still think that that joke hits its target because it gets laughs most times, but also seeing that human reaction to it uh, reminds me that, yeah, this isn't going to be funny for everyone and not Mm -hmm. everyone's going to appreciate your irreverence, but also you're a comedian. You're kind of there to be irreverent. So, so there's that. Well, yeah, I think that like we're talking mostly about local comedy, but I do think that there's a lot of these trends happening nationally around comedy where we're actually examining what is okay to joke about? What is an okay way to talk about this issue um, that is very serious? Who can make jokes about what? And there seems to be a lot of examination of that in in the comedy world more broadly. Um, yeah. And I'm curious about your take on all that because you're performing comedy, you're doing jokes that are about some of these issues sometimes. Have you seen those kind of attitudes towards comedy or close examination of comedy or criticism of certain types of comedy. Have you seen that reflected in the local scene? And what's your thought about that kind of trend more generally around comedy? I, you know, I have. And the thing is, I, I like to think of comedy um, as an art form, which uh, I said that to my wife and she laughed. So <laughs> so not everybody does, uh, but I do. And I, and I think part of uh, I think art is about pushing boundaries and it's about telling the truth. You know, I have this this friend, local comic, P.K. Hutchinson, and he tells this joke that I absolutely love. He starts out by asking the audience, 
do you do you believe in karma? Do you believe that karma's a real thing that you know you get what you give essentially? And the of course everybody believes in karma. Everybody does. It's so funny and so exciting. And everybody, you know, if you do good things, you'll get good things back. So everybody gets on his side immediately. Yeah, of course I believe in karma. And then he says, "Oh, good. Well, then, what do you think black people did to deserve all of this?" And that's just like, it's just. <laughs> such a smart punchline and you've gotten the audience completely on your side and it is so 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 very funny and a guy almost fought him at the show that i saw him tell that joke at a dude got on stage and almost fought him and so so i think and he's a white guy i should mention that and so i think there is this question of like is he allowed to joke about that what is his intent, ultimately? I think ultimately what it was with that joke is that it just made people feel upset. I think that they perceived it to be in some way racist because mm. they didn't see the nuance and complexity there. And that is, as I was just saying, a lot of comedy is reducing something down to its most simple form. But also uh, what a lot of people try to do nowadays, to an extent, uh, Dave Chappelle in his new special, is get at the nuance of things. And... Um, you know, if there's anything that I have found Americans not to be great with lately, it's nuance. And so, right. and so I think that really is it, is that that uh, we are not probably, to a great extent, a society that really turns ideas over and over and thinks about uh, why, why someone might be saying something or what a concept is. Instead, we are now probably a society that very quickly reaches a judgment and moves mm -hmm. forward with that immediate judgment. And so I think that's probably where a lot of the tension is coming from. And, the, you know, the same conversation is sort of happening in a lot of forms of art. Uh, there's this big conversation in casting right now uh, for television and film as to who can play which characters. Mm -hmm. If you have a Jewish character, should a Jewish place, person only play them? If you have a, a deaf character, must you, must you cast a deaf actor in that role? And I, you know... It's, my opinion is that it's acting, so probably not. But I also understand, well, probably that you don't have to, but I also understand why you want that sort of representation in mm -hmm. this media, why you want might want to have an authentically deaf, deaf person playing a deaf character, mm -hmm. um, because those parts are few and far between um, oftentimes. And so uh, so it is sort of a, a um, an ongoing tension in the arts. Um, I think people... I think the audience tells you when you've crossed the line for the most part, but you can't let them, uh, it, you can't let it be the tyranny of the masses, I guess. You can't let them tell you that you are wrong necessarily when you know that you are not. Right. Yeah. I think that's, I mean, and this is nothing new also, like all of this, the colorblind casting, I think has been, that's a newer conversation, but like as a gay guy, I've seen so many straight actors in the past playing all of the gay roles in all of the movies when I was a kid, like, yep. And now all of a sudden that's okay. Now we're recognizing that maybe people who actually represent these characters can play these characters. So this is not a new argument. I think it's just kind of exactly. always moving into new territory. And the thing you mentioned about um, kind of letting the audience be the judge on what's acceptable or not, I understand. But then one of the challenges with that sometimes is there is a massive audience for some really like bad, toxic, <laughs> shitty kind of stuff. So it's like, okay, well, as, if you can make a buck off it, that means it's okay. Yeah. Um, that argument doesn't always work because you can make a buck off some really awful stuff. Like there's yeah. an entire um, like racist right-wing media world. Yeah. Um, and I worry that, you know, just kind of like leaving what's okay in comedy up to the masses to kind of like approve or not. Um, it opens the door to a lot of like maybe actually harmful stuff that people will actively consume. So uh, I don't know the answer for that, but I'm sure it's uh, I'm sure it's a challenge as a comic to figure out like what guides what's okay and what's not. Like if you're basing yeah. it just on your audience response, um, you could be going down some paths that you don't really want to. Exactly. There was also uh, with Dave Chappelle. I know that part of the reason why he left Chappelle's show was because he felt like he was being laughed at sometimes rather than with. Mm. And certainly as a black comic performing in front of uh, heavily white audiences, sometimes I do question, why are you laughing at that joke? Are you laughing at it for the reason that I wrote it? Or are you mm. laughing at a different aspect of it that's a little, you know, a little more suspect? Um, so yeah, there, there is certainly that. You don't want to let the audience control it fully, you know?
Yeah. What um what comedians influenced you? Like who are your your favorite stand-up comedians either locally or national figures? Like what do you think um drew you to comedy as far as the, from the comedy that you saw? What really resonated with you and uh, and who do you think you like to to look up to or emulate or or hold up as as someone who's doing it doing it right? So, uh, you know, like I said, Sinbad was the very first sort of stand-up comic that I was just like, oh, wow, this guy is, you know, look at this guy. This is amazing. And the, the interesting thing about Sinbad that I found out fairly recently is that he does not write jokes. Uh, he has ADHD. And so that's the way his mind works. He goes up with ideas and then hmm. he sort of just riffs on them and sees what works, uh, which to me is terrifying. I, I write everything down to the word and rehearse it and rehearse it. But I mean, that level of talent uh, being spontaneous is just incredible. Of course, growing up in the 90s, uh, Jerry Seinfeld. I loved Jerry Seinfeld growing up. The comedy world has turned on Seinfeld a little bit now as sort of like a rich old man sort of thing. <laughs> so he's kind of he's kind of out now. Uh, but, um, well, not. He's still extremely yeah. popular and he still makes a ton of money. Yeah. Um, but but I, the, I, I think, is there... Is that kind of like a natural thing to happen in the comedy world where comics who are very much of their time can't continue to be like at the forefront of comedy? If your comedy is rooted in a certain era and a certain culture around comedy, there are very few examples of comedians who are able to like continue past their prime and, you know, continue doing what they're doing. And again, like you mentioned, Dave Chappelle who was like the biggest comic in the world. And now he's still very, very popular, but also is a controversial. And you see the same thing around Seinfeld. Yeah. And like, I think that's it. That almost feels like a normal thing in comedy to be out of touch at some point. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's, you know, what came to mind as you were saying that was the line from the dark Knight that Harvey Dent says, which is that you either, uh, what is it? You, either die a hero or you live long enough to see yourself become the villain. And that's sort of the, that's the line that came to mind while you were saying that. And it probably is. Yes. To a great extent, a, a comic who I kind of tend to think of as evergreen, at least since the nineties is uh, Chris Rock. I feel like Chris Rock has, has not become crazily controversial and yet still, you know, when he drops an HBO special, people are still extremely excited to see it. When he tours, people are still excited to see him. But certainly he's not young anymore. And so in terms of in terms of currently working comics, anyone who seems really smart, I just really, really admire. So I really admire uh, John Mulaney. Beth Stelling is extremely funny and smart. Drew Michaels just released this new HBO special that is just uh, sort of just amazing in terms of being a, a piece of art. And so so yeah, anybody who seems who can make a comment or criticism on current society in an extremely smart way, I'm extremely drawn to. Uh, Sam Morell is also a great one. And growing up, you know, I was thinking um, I liked Rodney Dangerfield a lot growing up too. His like I, I get no respect thing that was mm -hmm. really funny. Joan Rivers, she was one that was sort of like so out there that I, I just really loved her. Um, and I can still remember actually there is a joke. I think that made me think for the first time when I was a kid, I was like 10 years old. I saw this comic on the tonight show with Jay Leno and I cannot remember his name. I don't know if he's still even around. Um, but the joke that made me think, Oh, I could be a comic. It was this guy. He came out on stage, very sort of uh, relaxed, very stoner sort of affect. And he said, you know, I'm sorry. I seem a little out of it right now. And I, I was up late last night, you know, with my hose watering the lawn and so and i just thought oh my god that is so funny and of course i was 10 years old so i was like it was easy to make me laugh but it was so easy and so funny that i just thought oh yeah i could you know i could see myself doing this actually this guy is not overly clownish he doesn't have some big shtick he's just kind of uh you know he's just sort of uh up there talking and saying clever things mm -hmm. uh, yeah yeah so yeah. Why do you think it is that stand up is such an enduring form of comedy? Because we've had like major figures, celebrities forever, as long as, you know, since long before either of us were born, there were stand up comics that were major celebrities um, driving these kind of conversations about social issues all the way up till today. Like we still love stand up comedy. What do you think it is about stand up? Is it just the direct interaction with the audience? There's comedy movies and there's other forms of comedy. But is it just that it's like stripped down to the jokes and the storytelling with none of the distractions? Like, why is stand up unique in the comedy world? 
you know, I could see that it, it makes uh, it makes difficult topics palatable often, things that we want to talk about and want to hear about. What you hear a lot now is people just saying, you know, oh, God, I don't watch the news. I can't watch the news. You kind of need to to know what's going on in the world. I get don't watch too much of it, but I mm-hmm. but you need to know what's going on in the world. And so it's a way to interact with what's going on in the world that sort of uh, with a spoonful of sugar, I guess, mm-hmm. <laughs> added to it. You know, there is the audience interaction. It is exciting to watch someone create comedy in the moment. Sometimes you'll have an, an interaction with an audience member that's just so funny. And it's just kind of it's amazing to watch that sort of chemistry happen in the moment. It's also a bit of a high wire act. I think that uh, when I started in comedy, I would invite my friends to come see me. And I think that half the reason they came to see me was was to see if I sucked. Was to see, <laughs> is he going to humiliate himself in a room full of strangers? That is interesting to see. Mm. And so, so there is that. And when somebody doesn't and somebody can hold an audience wrapped uh, you know, for 20, 30 minutes, an hour. Um, it's just sort of a remarkable thing to see. And so um, I think all of that combined sort of guarantees that stand-up is going to be around for a while. And not to mention that the the forms it's taking are are changing. And so Drew Michaels, who I just mentioned, he did a special two years ago where he did not have an audience, where he was just standing in a room being filmed and telling his jokes but it sort of just made them sound like quippy stories that he was telling that were funny, but without the audience laughter, it it certainly changed what standup was. Mm-hmm. Um, or Bo Burnham, who, uh, you know, I don't even know if you can fully, you can't even fully classify him as standup, but combining that sort of like music and jokes and uh, sort of the cinematography that he's brought into it. It's just, it has taken comedy and stand-up comedy to a to a different place. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it is interesting to see how you can continue to evolve this art form, which essentially just comes down to a man or woman on a stage holding a microphone standing next to a stool, you know? <laughs> so, yeah. Excellent. Well, how can people find you? How can people get in touch with what's happening in the local comedy scene? So for people in Reno who want to know more about local comedy, who want to participate or who want to go to shows, what should we do? How do we how do we get involved? How do we um, participate? So I believe that there is a Facebook group called Reno Stand Up Comedy that you can check out to see if you want uh, to to try and check out shows there. You can find me online on Instagram at DGJ Comedy at David Gamble Jr. at DGJ Comedy. And I have some of my clips there. And that's where I also post about shows I'll be uh, appearing on. Also, some of my friends are on there. And so you can find some other Reno comedians. Like I said, I have a show coming up at Farino Distillery on uh, Friday, January 28th at 8 p.m. And I will be putting that up on my Instagram and Facebook pages here soon. So yeah, check that out as well. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show. Like I said, I've wanted to do an episode about comedy for a long time. And I was super glad to have you on the show, not just to talk about comedy, but also uh, you have like a relatively unique perspective as a black comic in a white city like Reno and you're very tied in with what's happening in the community. So I'm very grateful that you were able to take the time to have this conversation. Like I said, I, I learn a lot. I love these kind of conversations where I get to kind of get into the weeds of how it all works. And, you know, you mentioned early, like the kind of like nerdy analysis of comedy. Like (laughs) I'm into that. I'm into that. I want to know, I want to know why it works. I want to know what doesn't work. Um, I'm always interested in kind of like the societal implications of these like trends in entertainment and media. And I think comedy is just such an interesting uh, an important part of how we talk about issues, how we understand things, how we communicate. Um, so thanks for coming on the show to talk about it. I think it was really, yeah. uh, really enlightening. So I appreciate thank you. Thank you. Yeah, this was a lot of fun. Thank you for having me. Awesome. Thank you so much. Listeners, thank you again for checking out this week's episode of Renoites and extra special thanks to my guest, David Gamble Jr. Thank you so much for coming on the show. What an excellent conversation. Really, really enjoyed having him on the show. Check out his upcoming show at Farino Distillery on January 28th. I am planning to be there. Hope to see you there as well. Should be a lot of fun. Some local comics and David himself. Again, if you enjoy this podcast, this episode, a couple ways you can help. Let your friends know about the show. Spread the word. Also, leave me a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. It really does help people find us. One of my constant complaints is that Apple Podcasts seems to not want to show my podcast when you search for Reno. I don't know if more reviews will help, more five stars, 
whatever. But if you can post a positive review for the podcast, maybe that'll help us actually show up in the search results one of these days. Thanks a lot, Apple. Anyways, also this season, I have some production help in the form of a co-producer, my friend Sierra Chiak. So shout out to Sierra for helping make this episode happen. I appreciate you listening. Thank you so much for your support. We'll see you all next week. Music